Uh, Father God, we pray that you take the rest of the service and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would minister to us. You minister to our hearts and minds and bodies. I pray, Lord, for a refreshing presence in the house right now. I pray, Lord, for an empowering presence in the house right now. I pray, Lord, that we, before we leave uh, this morning, we would all be changed at least a little bit. We thank you for attending to us, for your message to us, and your presence with us. In Christ's name, amen. We've been doing this sermon series on life lessons from the Bible. Just, just trying to be practical. Look at things that, uh, that Jesus' followers do uh, to... Uh, keep strong and to propel themselves forward. We talked about the life practice of redemption, uh, which isn't just like a moment that happens to a believer, uh, but it's a commitment to a principle and to a process of redeeming bad experiences or disappointing experiences and bringing life and purpose into them. We talked about uh, the good practice of confession, uh, telling even the embarrassing parts of uh, your story. Uh, so take 10 seconds right now and say something embarrassing to the person next to you. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, we'll continue to work on that. Good. It was, it's, a bit, it's a bit mortifying to me that so many of you had one right at the tip of your tongue. Uh, we talked about uh, the practice of keeping good company. You have to get, for, get together for yourself and your life a purpose posse. You need to get together a tribe of try. You need to have co-travelers, people that you walk with. CJ, can you turn that one off, please? Um, we talked about the practice of forgiveness, which is absolutely vital and fundamental to a healthy spiritual life. Uh, we talked about the practice of joy or enjoyment, if you prefer that word. Bringing joy into life in a powerful way uh, that keeps you strong and moving. And we talked last week about prayer and what the practice of prayer achieves for us. If you pray relentlessly, Jesus says, uh, then you're pretty much promised to get something along the lines of what you pray for. It might not be exactly what you pray for, but assuming that you're praying for something good, you will get a blessing along the lines. The reason it's not exactly what you pray for in every instance is because God is smarter than you are. Uh, but prayer is effective, uh, one done relentlessly and with a heart of love. Uh, but, but also, and perhaps more importantly, if you pray regularly, your faith stays alive. If you're having a crisis of faith, then probably you're not praying consistently. And Jesus says, if you pray persistently, then faithfulness does not give out. When the Son of Man comes, he will find faith in your life. So prayer, the practice of regular prayer, uh, keeps our faith alive, and faith is a rare commodity on this earth. Today we're going to talk about uh, the practical life skill of reading your Bible. Now, how many of you are just excited about that topic? All right. People of Scripture, Bible reading. Uh, which, uh, which they tell me is supposed to be really, really good for Jesus followers uh, reading the Bible. How many of you have a physical Bible today? today? No, I, come on, come on. Old school paper and ink Bible. How many of you have a, have a smartphone Bible? All right, just checking. Reading it. Uh, 
regularly uh, is supposed to be uh, really good for us. I just want to ask the question today, what does reading the Bible actually achieve for us? You know, if it's a good practice, why? Uh, what, what are we going to get out of it? And assuming there's something good in it, how might we go about reading the Bible regularly? Now, not so long ago, a couple months ago, we did a whole sermon series on the Bible. Not reading the Bible, but on the content of the Bible. What we did is that we took a look at the Bible from start to finish in some sweeping arc, because I think it's really important to get a picture of the whole thing so that you can look at little pieces of it uh, more profitably. And, and we found that the Bible is just a completely unique and amazing, wondrous document, unique in the world. It's, it's basically a record of God and humanity. It's the story of God and humanity through time. It contains the oldest stories that the human race can remember. The stories from the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And then it just kind of goes forward from there. The stories become richer and more mature and, 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 um, and more sophisticated uh, as time goes by and the human race grows up and can understand and record. Uh, better and better. It's a supernatural document in that it's inexplicably coherent. I mean, it hangs together well from beginning to end, even though it was written over literally centuries and centuries, and even though the authors of the scripture were from different cultures, different times, different locations around uh, uh, the Middle East, and, and that in itself is just inexplicable. There's just no way to explain that without recourse to a supernatural God. Uh, and it has a surprising and perfect climax in the form of Jesus. The original problem presented by Scripture is not that humankind had a problem believing in the existence of God. The original problem was that humankind didn't trust God to be good to them. Right? Adam and Eve knew that God existed. It's just that Adam and Eve didn't trust that God was good to them that had their interest in mind, so they decided to disobey God. The fundamental problem is not the existence of God. The fundamental problem is trusting God. And so we believers try to trust God. It's not, it's not that we believe the right things about God. It's that we live a life of trusting him day to day. And Jesus came along uh, and was the perfect answer to the problem of trust. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, beaten, hanging naked, totally humiliated, if you were to look at him on that day of his execution, and if you believe that he was indeed the Son of God, that he was God incarnate, then you would say to yourself, well, that God clearly is not interested in lording it over anyone. That God is clearly a humble God. That God is trustworthy. And that's a God whose character I can, I can rely on. Nobody saw Jesus coming. Uh, but when he came, the smart people who knew Scripture realized that he was the perfect answer to the problems that were set up way back in the beginning of, of Genesis. In other words, the Bible is the story of God and humankind in which the core truths of our race are revealed. And some instructions are given such that we might understand the principles behind them. It's not a shallow document, um, the commands that God gives all have a purpose that tend toward trusting God better. And the Bible makes clear that the story goes on. It's not a story for adherents. It's a story for participants. The Bible calls us to participate in a, in a, in a sort of life that the Bible encourages. 
But that's all about the content of the Bible. And, and what I want to talk about today is, is reading the Bible. It's us reading the Bible as a practice and how that might be good uh, and might, uh, might, might even be not boring, uh, but exciting and helpful in life. You know, of course, you know, all the amazing content of the Bible, it's true that the Bible also has some very practical revelations uh, particularly in the climactic teachings of Jesus, as Jesus is sort of the, the climax of the story that the Bible tells. Well, Jesus' teachings put things together in, in a nice way, a powerful way, a clear way, and, and, and quite often a challenging way. In his teachings, we find not just wisdom, but sort of otherworldly wisdom and insight Today, probably like a lot of you, I'm thinking about all the horrible racial strife uh, that we're reading about back in Virginia and Charlottesville. I don't know if you've been keeping up on that story over the weekend, but here it is in broad strokes. Uh, there's been some talk and effort in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, having to do with the removal of some uh, Confederate, old Confederate monuments, like there was a statue of Robert E. Lee uh, that uh, some people were finding offensive because the Confederate states uh, promoted, uh, among other things, a, a certain racial view uh, of life that you know, people are saying, you know, we should, just, we should just eliminate all signs of that. And that offended some people in the area because, you know, that old statue of Robert E. Lee isn't a monument to racism. It's a monument to, you know, the history of us. So it should stay. And predictably, that got really heated. And then a whole bunch of white supremacists came to town and sort of marched in protest and saying, no, no, um, you know, the monument should stay. All these monuments should stay. And in fact, uh, white people should rule the world. I'm simplifying, but that was essentially the message. And that predictably offended some people. And there were some counter-marchers, some counter-protests, um, uh, largely, though not entirely, uh, um, comprised of, of people of color, African-American people uh, specifically. And so that got, that got very heated. Uh, there was a lot of taunting, a lot of bickering. And then eventually what happened this weekend is that uh, a man who ap apparently is connected uh, to the white supremacists or at least a sympathizer drove his car into a crowd of African-American counter-protesters injured I believe it was 19, they're saying, killed one woman who was just 32 years old. There's just no good in that story, you know. Uh, and now the vitriol starts and um, the commentators and, and the politicians and the news people are jumping in and, and people are saying that, you know, President Trump uh, was not offended enough. He did not express enough outrage and so a lot of uh, Republican senators and congressmen are expressing outrage and there's accusations from the left, accusations that, you know, it, it's, just, it's just that story and someone's dead and a lot of people are angry and hurt and it's just a showcase for ugliness. I can tell you what's going to happen in the public discourse and the news cycle now. People are going to compete to see who's the most outraged. Uh, they're going to assign blame. And I, 
maybe this is a comment on my lack of faith, but I, I, I just don't see a lot of healing and progress coming out of this situation. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Anyway, so I've been, I've been caught up in that, and I've been thinking about that and praying about that this weekend, as I'm sure many of you have. The Bible doesn't encourage us to just be good. The Bible encourage us, encourages us to be godly good, to be weird good. Everybody say weird good. Two important principles that I get uh, from reading the Bible uh, that I think about all the time and that I think apply to even a terrible situation like we're seeing in, in Virginia. Jesus, uh, well, one, one of the principles is serve the oppressed, always champion the least, the poor, whether they're racially oppressed or socioeconomically oppressed. We should always be sensitive to them. We should always champion those who are the least in our society. Seems like that should apply to the situation. The Bible also says that we should love bad people in a unique way. That's the weird one. Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, <laughs> I love the way he prefaces his teachings. He says, look, if you're willing to actually listen to me for a second, just take a breath and listen to me for a second. Here's what I have to say. Jesus said that uh, one day when he was talking to uh, a bunch of uh, oppressed people. When Jesus walked in Israel, Israel was oppressed by a Roman occupation, a military occupation where Romans would just publicly murder anyone they thought was being patriotic or might threaten their, their conquest, their oppressive conquering government. You know, and Jesus said, hey, hey, if you're willing to hear what I have to say, let me tell you something. And then he said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, how many of you think that in the crowd Jesus was talking to that day, they accepted that teaching? That's a hard one. When you're being beaten up by an oppressive Roman soldier. So, obviously, very challenging teaching. Very otherworldly teaching. I'm thinking that in Charlottesville, if either side, if either side had taken Jesus' words to heart, I bet the weekend would have progressed a bit differently. You know, if... God help them, the white supremacists had decided to love their enemies. Boy, that, that would have been revolutionary and healing in a powerful way. If the counter-protesters had decided to love their enemies and to bless those who cursed them rather than cursing them for cursing them, I think the story of the weekend uh, would have turned out differently. I understand why nobody followed the Jesus teaching at least nobody that I know of, and there may have indeed been individuals there championing Christ. Um, but, you know, I, I, I sympathize when somebody curses me. I, I'm, I'm liable to curse them back. That's just my nature. Uh, but Jesus said, no, 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 what you have to do is bless them and, and pray for them and be kind to them. I understand why that's hard. I do, but man... It's good insight. It eliminates the blame game. It eliminates power politics and stuff like that. Um, how many of you would say that to stop racism, you must oppose racial supremacists? 
Sure, yeah. How many of you would say that to stop racism, you should love and bless racial supremacists? That's a weird teaching, right? That is a weird teaching. It's a weird teaching. Um, but we all want justice. We want justice for, for racially oppressed. We want an end to racism everywhere. You know, but to paraphrase uh, some of the Jesus teachings, if you want justice, you have to make peace. And if you want to make peace, then you should establish justice. You have to do it all together, but you definitely need to do it, and that's the call uh, to us believers. You have to do it because hate is not love. And now I'll just leave that aside for a minute. That's just an example of how reading the Bible can keep it fresh in your mind. It's applicable to, to our worst crises uh, collectively and individually. It's powerful and challenging stuff. But... I think you have to be careful about how you mine the scripture for insight. I think you, you have to be careful about, about how you go about reading it and, and what you do with it. You know, uh, that's, that's said poorly. I think you have to be careful of the spirit with which you use your Bible knowledge. Uh, the Bible is full of truth and principles to understand, lessons to live by, and we want to hold them deeply but in the spirit of Jesus, I think we also want to hold them humbly. Hold them humbly uh, as typified by the humility of the naked, beaten God hanging on the cross. That kind of humility. You know, a humility that really exposes you to sorts of vulnerability. Um, in large part, because what the Bible gives us by way of practical lessons are often so foreign and so otherworldly, we have to realize that we might not understand it fully all of the time. Our instincts might not help us out. Trouble can happen when we start to read the Bible as if it were a simple recipe book instead of reading it as a, uh, a rich document filled with stories and principles and, and, and meditations. I don't think the Bible is a simplistic step-by-step how-to guide. I don't really think it's a manual for life in that sense. I think it's, it's about truth, uh, which is a slightly different thing. People uh, in, in the Christian world, in the church world, often get very passionate about the Bible, very passionate about the Word, the Word, you know. Uh, the early Christians that we read about in scriptures and the epistles talked about the Word of God, the Word of Christ, and, and modern Christians have picked up that phrase, the Word, and... and and they treat it as if it's synonymous with, with the Bible. Well, the New Testament didn't even exist during New Testament times. So, so uh, you know, the word was, was more the message of Christ, the gist of what Jesus was saying. That was, that was the word. Um, if you want to understand the word, you have to understand all of Jesus before you start understanding individual scriptures. Uh, but I, I, I digress slightly. Um, the point that worries me just slightly is that passionate Bible fans, and I'm a passionate Bible fan. When I was a kid, I used to sleep with the Bible under my pillow in hopes that something would sink in. Um, passionate Bible fans sometimes talk as if reading Scripture, and remember today we're talking about the reading of Scripture, not just the content of it. 
they often talk as if reading scripture and, and knowing scriptures is the singular path to salvation. They're like, that's it, man. That's what defines you as a believer, how well you know the Bible, how well you know Bible verses. It is like the most important of Christian just disciplines. And, and, and uh, as I've grown older, I've, I've thought to myself, geez, you know, I, I think Satan probably knows the Bible better than I do. Doesn't help him much. You know, so there's something else going on there overselling something, overselling Bible reading just tempts people to reject Bible reading in the end because it doesn't automatically accomplish for you what some people promise it will. You just got to soak in the word. You just got to soak in the scripture and then dot, 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 everything will work out. Then dot, 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 you'll always know what to do. I actually don't think so. But reading the Bible sure is useful. Right? Overselling something, even that is immensely good, like reading the Bible is, can lead you to reject it, and lead people to reject it eventually. Are you following me? Just say something like, amen, or yeah, or chihu, or whatever you want to say, so that I know you're following. Reading the Bible is, is important. It's just not as totally miraculous as some people might claim, and, and it's not a simplistic recipe book. If you treat it that way, you can misuse it. And uh, we get some commentary on that in scriptures. Uh, one of our scriptures today comes from Matthew 22, a short story about Jesus interacting with Bible experts, uh, with uh, scripture teachers of his day, uh, the real religious experts of his day. Jesus mostly argued with, with religious experts, never argued with sinners. Um, Matthew 22, uh, the same day, the Sadducees, now the Sadducees were a religious slash political party uh, that were famous for respecting the laws of Scripture, and, and they did not like Jesus because Jesus did not fit their image of what uh, a godly teacher should be like. Uh, the same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, uh, came to him with a question. Jesus was preaching life after death, and the Sadducees didn't believe in it. They were pretty sure that Scripture uh, didn't support the idea of life after death, so they were big critics of Jesus. They want to they beat him in debate on this. So they come to him one day, and they say, Teacher, so Moses, in Scripture, Moses is uh, the, he's the pseudo-author of uh, a big chunk of the early New Testament, uh, Old Testament, Moses told us in Scripture that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up an uh, offspring for him, uh, which is true. Uh, scripture does say that, and it was a way of providing welfare for widows and orphan kids. Uh, back in those days, uh, society was uh, polygamous, so um, you know you could have more than one wife. And Moses said, "Look, if your brother..." If your brother dies and he and his, leaves a, a wife and children, take care of them. Uh, now there were seven brothers among us. They're giving him an example now. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at this resurrection that you're talking about, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? It's kind, of a, it's kind of a cute little 
question, right? It's like, well, if, if a woman has seven husbands, all legitimately married, because she was a widow when she got married, uh, when she's resurrected, whose wife is she going to be? Ha! We've proved that there is no resurrection. Um, and Jesus replied, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. It's like, you guys are experts, but you're stupid experts. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Uh, it's like, see, you are so hung up on your worldview, you can't imagine that life after death will work differently than this life. Uh, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. All famous people from Jewish history who had died. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I don't, I'm not really sure that Jesus' Jesus's counterproof is any better than the Sadducees' proof that there is no resurrection. I am the God of Abraham, and Abraham's Abraham died on earth, but I'm not the God of dead people. I'm the God of living people, so Abraham must be living somewhere. Do you follow the chain of logic? Not, not a great proof, but Jesus is just sort of answering in kind. He said, you know, if you want to debate Scripture, here you go. But the crowd was amazed because they realized that debating Scripture, I think, wasn't the end of it. Anyway, a little example of how Jesus handled people who thought they knew it all. And that's something that overselling the reading of the Bible can, can cause us to fall into. It can cause us to fall into expertise. You know, if you want to become a Bible expert, depending on how you use that word, it might lead you into trouble. Right? You might, there might be a temptation to become just a little too clever for your own good might be a temptation to weaponize scripture like the Sadducees did, to use it to prove your point, even if you're using it in kind of a weird, strained sort of way. You start arguing the details of scripture verses rather than taking a step back and thinking, wait a minute, what does God really want? What is God's real nature? What is the nature of the stories that the Bible uh, contains? By contrast, uh, the way that some of the famous early Christian leaders that the Apostle Paul talked about Scripture uh, was, was different. Uh, here's a rather famous passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17 in your programs on the big board. This is Paul talking to his young disciple, his protege, Timothy. One, a veteran minister of the gospel, talking to a young minister of the gospel. And Paul says to Timothy... You, however, know, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Then listen, Timothy, I'm going to teach you a lesson, right? Now, I want you to think about my whole life. I want you to think about the mission. I want you to think about the nature of following Jesus. All right, you got that in your head? You got a picture of how it actually works in life? Okay then. The Lord rescued me from all of them, all of that stuff. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
while evildoers evil and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. I'll just pause there for a second. What Paul is saying is like, look, I'm a powerful missionary. I do a lot of miracles. I planted a lot of churches. But you know that my life has been hard as it's not. We'll keep this PG. Um, you know what it's like. I don't want you to lose endurance. I don't want you to stop just because you're persecuted. You know what those, how those evil people are going to treat you. Um, don't let it throw you. And then he continues. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now he's talking about how Scripture fits in to the true life of faith and ministry. You've known the Scriptures. You're familiar with them. The scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm not going to pick apart this passage, uh, but just to make the most general point. It's very clear to Paul that you get most out of scripture when you're living the Jesus life. And if you are leaving the Jesus life with its sacrifice, with its hard work, then you can reflect on Scripture and have it be very, very useful for you. It can keep you anchored. It can keep you on target, which I think is a good phrase. Don't use Scripture to be right. Use Scripture to be true. Don't use Scripture to be justified. Use scripture to keep you on target. And it's hard to stay on target in this life. And scripture is a tremendous ally to keep us on target. That's why you should read it daily. That's why you should use it for teaching. And that's why you should use it in conversation. That's what Paul is saying. So what does scripture reading achieve for us? Uh, we'll just sort of conclude here. Well, I think it achieves for us resilient obedience. If you read scripture regularly, you stay on target. If you read Scripture regularly, you are unlikely to be sucked into sins and pitfalls and empty arguments and outrage that, that, that takes you out of the game. Uh, scripture helps you to keep it real, you know? That's what it gets you. It helps you to keep your life real. Uh, I talk about it all the time. So many of you know that um, some years ago I was uh, like savagely depressed. I had like a near suicidal depression for a number of years. And I was running in, in good Christian church circles at that time. And I was trying to stick in ministry. And, and people knew that I was really depressed and struggling. And so they gave me a lot of scriptural advice. And most of it was really unhelpful. Have you ever had that experience? That you're going through a really tough time and so somebody quotes a scripture verse at you and, and somehow their scripture verse about peace and well-being makes you want to punch them in the face. <laughs> Is it just me? Am I the only person not holy enough to handle it? Uh, well, it was having all sorts of those experiences. Uh, people were saying, 
you know, well, I'm really depressed, I'm really uh, struggling. Uh, I said, well, you know, the Psalms say uh, that you should praise God every morning. Are you praising God every morning? <laughs> like to praise Jesus on you right now. I don't know, it's weird things, you know, that I would say that would go through my, through my head. Well, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You've just lost your hope. Yeah, no kidding, I'm depressed. Um, and you know, I was having all, all, all sorts of experiences like that from, from very well-meaning, loving people, you know. But, but like Timothy, I had known Scripture from my youth. I was familiar with it. So what I decided to do was to, was to turn back to Scripture reading. And my favorite thing to read during the worst of my depression, perhaps not surprisingly, was the book of Job. You know, and I just, I love that book so much. You know, there's a very real way in which it saved my life uh, because, um, you know, the book of Job is just a meditation on someone whose life has turned to crap and, and pain and, and all manner of unfair suffering. But somehow he's stuck with it. You know, it doesn't give a lot of answers, uh, but it speaks of how purpose prevails even in a life of unremitting disappointment. I could talk about it forever. So much of that scripture is locked in my head right now. It kept me on target. It did not solve things for me, but it kept me from drifting away into destruction or false comforts. Scripture reading will achieve that for you too. It's just fantastic uh, nutrition. A consistent prayer, praying to God regularly and daily, uh, will prevent you from a crisis of faith. It will keep your faith alive. Reading the Bible regularly will protect you from crises of stupid behavior. It will keep you from doing stupid stuff. I'll keep it PG. That, that's what it does. How? Well, because the Bible gives you simple reminders of stuff that is good. And if you're reflecting on that daily, you'll remember what is good. And because reading Scripture, I think, develops in us habits of insight and honesty. Right? If, if you read Scriptures like love your enemies, and you're just a little bit honest about it, it will give you pause. It will create a little space in your morning. And you'll read the story of what's happening in Virginia a little bit differently because of that space in your head and your heart. Are you following me? Everybody clap once. You have no rhythm. But I'm glad you're here hanging with me. How should you go about reading the Bible then? Well, I have two very, very simple tips if you're interested. Uh, tip number one, read it alone. Tip number two, read it together. There you go. Thanks for coming. By read it alone, I think, you know, you should probably read a little, a little bit of Scripture every day. You should have a daily dose of Scripture. Uh, the way I would recommend that you do it is that I recommend that you read through entire books at a time. I don't like those devotional um, approaches where you get a verse of the day and the verse could come from anywhere in the Bible and there's no real connection between the verses. I mean, verses are great, but it's not how the Bible's written. You know, the Bible is written in an arc right? Books hang together and stuff like that. So I would recommend that you go through a, a book at a time. Now, if you're new to the Bible, don't just choose any book. Don't start with the book of Job. It's depressing. 
Unless you're depressed, in which case it's wonderful. Um, you know, I would recommend if you're starting out and you want to develop a habit of Bible reading, I would really, really, really recommend the book of Mark. Uh, it's the shortest gospel. It's 16 chapters. It is written really economically. It's like reading a newspaper account. There's so many great stories. Mark was originally written in pidgin Greek, a very unsophisticated language, uh, but it's organized in a genius sort of way. I love Mark. I cannot tell you how many dozens of times I've read through the gospel of Mark. Pretty much haven't memorized. I just, I just love it to pieces. And so read through it. It's it's classic, simple, straightforward, original Jesus. Uh, so read the Gospel of Mark. Matthew and Luke are not bad for beginners as well. Uh, a bit more of Jesus' teachings in there. The Gospel of John is wonderful, but it's a bit more Hebrew. It's a bit more artistic and swirling and meditative. So you might not take to it right away. You might want to save that one for, for later. I think reading the Psalms is great because Psalms are written to be to be read in small chunks. And so it's one of the few books of the Bible where you can get away with that. Uh, the book of Proverbs. Psalms are nice too. You want to read a psalm a day. That conditions your heart as the Proverbs might condition your mind. Those are pretty good choices. As you get into Scripture, you can certainly go and read all of the other books as well, but my advice would be to start with those and develop a daily habit of reading. How do you know if you're reading enough Scripture? How do you know when you're reading it alone that it's kind of doing what it's supposed to do in your life? Well, here's a rule of thumb. When you're able to share with someone what you've been reading and a thought you've had about what you've been reading, then you're doing it. You're nailing it. You know, in daily conversation, or uh, you're able to say, hey, I, I read this just the other day, and I was thinking... When you're able to do that, I, you've pretty much become a person of Scripture at that point. Right? It's, it's not a big fancy thing. It's just that, wow, it's taken a little bit of space in your consciousness. And that's awesome. We don't have to be no big fancy Scripture expert. In fact, Jesus mostly argued with the big fancy Scripture experts. But you do want to be a person of Scripture in such a way that you become somewhat conversant on a personal way. In a personal way. You following me? That's it. That's it. That in and of itself is fantastic if you can pull it off. Uh, second tip is to read it together. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to talk over scripture with people. It's incredibly bonding. Uh, incredible. That's the best way to learn scripture. It's the best way to learn scripture. So get thee to an Ohana group. Go to one of our Ohana groups, one of our midweek meetings, and, and every Ohana group will have a truth discussion of some sort. Uh, they'll, they'll have probably some little passage of Scripture that they're wrestling with. Maybe occasionally groups go through whole books. Uh, and they'll ask provocative questions that come from that passage. And you'll wrestle through the questions together, or you'll apply it uh, to your various life circumstances. And you'll become a tribe of Scripture that way, a tribe of truth, which is enormously helpful. Um, some of you may want to become deep students of Scripture. You may want to become Bible experts, which, which is, is by no means bad. It's great. And a lot of us, some of us, uh, need to, to have very deep knowledge. Uh, we become a resource uh, for others. Um, there are so many resources out there for studying the Bible that a simple Google search will get you far. 
but uh, a word to the wise to become a, a deep student of scripture. You have to understand all of it and not just pieces of it. So the whole Bible is a pretty long book. You know, you have to understand it all in context, which is what our recent sermon series was about. If you want to know what scripture says, you need to know what scripture means. You can't know what it means just by knowing what it says in places. So give it some time if you're interested in studying the whole Bible and get the whole bit uh, into your head. Uh, there are all sorts of annual Bible reading plans that you can get online. Read through the Bible in a year. That's worth doing uh, now and then uh, for those of you who want to really get into it. Or you can do it like I did it when I was a kid. I started at Genesis. I read through the end of Revelation. I started over. I was not a sophisticated kid, but I was a stubborn one. Uh, and use that uh, if you have it. In summary, I kind of think of the Bible as a great soundtrack for life. You know, I, I read it all the time so that when I'm walking through my day with my inimitable rhythm, I'm kind of hearing the Bible pulsing in the background, right? Sort of, that's what I mean by soundtrack. For like, what does a soundtrack do for a movie? Well, it, it kind of fills it with spirit, doesn't it? And it, it's, it's, it's kind of background, but it's, it becomes part of your narrative. It's there as a resource, resource for you. Maybe calling the Bible a soundtrack is a little, bit, a little bit crass. Maybe we should invent a word like truth track, you know? Maybe the Bible should be the truth track for our lives, but you gotta, you know, you gotta put in the earbuds daily. You gotta hear that truth a little bit daily so that it gets stuck in your head, which is something that a good soundtrack does. It gets stuck in your head, which is something that a good truth track does. Are you following me? On the character, do you have a truth track in your life? That's what I think the Bible should be. Read it regularly. It'll get stuck in there. And here's what it will do. It will give you valuable life lessons. It will give you core truths. But most generally, it will give you a perspective on things. A perspective is powerful, but it's also hard to define. In perspective is how you look at things. You'll be looking at racial strife in Virginia in a, in, a, in a new way if you have the truth track. You'll be looking at your daily relationships in a new way if you have a truth track. It will shape you, perhaps gradually, but ultimately impressively, the way a running river can shape rock. It will get a groove into your life, and like a running river, it will take you somewhere. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that we would be a people of Scripture, but that we would be a people who have a healthy relationship with Scripture. That we would understand it the way that Jesus did. That we would use it the way that Jesus did. I pray, Father, that you would anchor us in the old stories and the ever-new revelations so that we have a unique perspective in the world. In other words, where there is strife, we would be able to bring peace. And where there is confusion, we would always be able to bring a nugget of insight because we have a constantly running truth track from which to draw. 
Some of us are here today and, and life is just tense and confused. I bless you in Jesus' name to start moving to the rhythm of the truth track of Scripture. The lessons would get in. The meditations that have seemed dry would begin to seem fruitful and hopeful. I mean, there are some people here today that are, are uh, uh, a little bit wild with pain, which makes it hard for you to live a disciplined life. Maybe you are strained into false comforts that are not helpful for you. I bless you in Jesus' name with just the simple truths of Scripture and charge you as your brother in the Lord. Get into the Jesus teachings a little bit. Discuss them with your brothers and sisters. Renew your mind a little bit. Develop the resilient obedience that will keep you on target for the rest of your life. I pray, Father, for works of healing, for works of straightening, and for works of empowerment. In Jesus' name, everybody says...